You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Just a couple more chapters left in our study of Revelation. We'll be done with Revelation by the end of July. Um, Just to kind of give you a heads up about the next few weeks, uh, my family will be out of town on vacation next Sunday and the following Sunday. And so we'll be blessed to hear from uh, Adam McLeod and Marcus Garrett. We'll both be preaching those Sundays. Um, So we look forward to hearing uh, God's word brought uh, to us by those men. And then when I get back from vacation, we will finish up uh, Revelation chapter 22, uh, which I believe is July 29th. Um, And so we'll finish up Revelation there at the end of July. We'll do application Sunday, that first week, uh, first Sunday in August. And then uh, my plan is to take um, two or three weeks for us to kind of recap and uh, refresh ourselves on the vision and the goals of Sovereign Hope. We like I like to do that every time we finish a study of a book um, to kind of step back and just talk about our church in general, kind of reset our course for things that we desire uh, God to do here. And so we'll do that for two or three weeks. And then my plan is for us to then move into um, the book of Hebrews and to approach it like we did the book of Romans and cover it a chapter a week. Um, and so my goal is to move through the book of Hebrews and to be done with Hebrews around Christmas time. Um, and at that point, potentially moving into the gospel of Luke um, would be our, our teaching course for the next several months. And then however long God has us in the book of Luke. So um, looking forward to finishing up Revelation. I think it's been hopefully a, a beneficial study for us. It's really reminded us of the, the goals um, that God has for creation and where he's moving all of history. I'm really excited to uh, to then step back and just recalibrate our, our church and, and what God wants to do here and for us to see how we join together in those efforts and then to jump into the book of Hebrews, um, which I think is a, it's a really challenging book, has a lot of, a lot of hope to offer us, um, a lot of encouragement um, that's contained in that book. I know it was one of, one of the classes in seminary that really stands out to me looking back on some of the things that I learned in, in that book. And so I'm excited to do that. I'm excited to do it in kind of an overview standpoint like we did the book of Romans and then jumping into a gospel, um, most likely the gospel of Luke. All right, so Revelation chapter 21 um, is where we'll be today. Just kind of recapping where we were um, last week. We were looking at the great white throne judgment. Uh, I'm talking about the final judgment being a place where we all give an account for how we've lived our life, believers being granted eternal reward because of their faith in Christ, unbelievers being eternally punished due to their sin and guilt. We talked about rejoicing over the fact that when we stand before God, we stand before a judge who knows us personally, that Jesus is our judge, that um, he will judge us. He'll do so with proper standards. We talked about laboring for a thorough judgment of works, that every human will be judged and every act will be considered. We talked about that final judgment for a believer not being a place where our confidence should be undone. And I shared with you briefly at the end of last week's sermon some important verses that I think shed some light on what that judgment will look like for believers and, and how God is not intending to um, stir up and bring up a bunch of a bunch of old history for us and trying to um, bring about a remembrance of sins that have long been forgiven. And I wanted to, to read some of those verses because we did not get a chance to do so last week um, and just really didn't want that point to get lost there at the end of the sermon. So I want to read a couple of those uh, before we jump into Revelation 21 this morning. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to jump from where you're at right now over to Psalm 103, verse 12. Or if you just want to jot some of these references down once again and take time to look at them um, on your own. Verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Just talking about how God views sin in relationship to the believer and the forgiveness that's extended to us and the, the distance that's really created by his forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 38, 
verse 17. There's another passage. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. A picture of of God forgetting our sins, a picture of God moving forward past our sins. Isaiah chapter 43 is another passage, just a couple of pages away. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. All right, so a picture again of how uh, forgiveness is extended to the believer and how God views those sins moving forward. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Again, that picture of a, of a complete removal of our sins. We highlighted Romans chapter 8 uh, last week as a, as a New Testament reference for how God views the believer. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So again, those are passages that I think offer great encouragement to us when we view the the final judgment for the believer. Again, I told you the the horror stories that I had growing up of of sitting in a movie theater and everybody else that, that I ever loved or cared for sitting right next to me and God playing sin after sin after sin before everybody so that everybody else could know how bad I was. Um, I do believe we give an account. I just don't think it's done in the way that sometimes we think about it because of these passages and the forgiveness that's extended to us. And so whatever that judgment looks like, I don't think it's meant to undo the confidence of the believer that we approach it. We look forward to this day. We don't look forward to what comes after this day, right? Like we look forward to this day when Jesus comes back. It is, it is rejoicing for the believer, not something that we are to shrink back from. All right, so that brings us to Revelation chapter 21. And we begin to look at the new heavens and the new earth. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. On the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, 
The tenth, Chrysoprase. The eleventh, Jacinth. The twelfth, Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is in the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, uh, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Our summary sentence for today, in the end, God will restore the forfeited blessings of Eden, providing the conquerors an inheritance free from all of the negative things associated with this current fallen world, and instead filled with the eternal joy of his presence. In the end, God will restore the forfeited blessings of Eden, providing the conquerors an inheritance free from all of the negative things associated with this current fallen world, and instead filled with the eternal joy of his presence. For our kids, a believer's eternity will be free from all of the bad things about this world and will be filled with God's presence. And if you think back to what we looked at in Genesis several years back and and the picture of, of what that original environment was, we talked at that time how Adam and Eve forfeited a lot of those things. And then we briefly looked at this passage in Revelation 21 and 22 to see the restoration of those things. That paradise was lost, in a sense, with Adam and Eve's sin. But then we see the, the bookends of, of the Bible there at the beginning. Paradise is forfeited. But then at the end of God's word, we see paradise being restored. We see the, the blessings uh, being renewed and the blessings being given back to mankind but even greater than what they were originally given as, right? Because what we see here in this passage is that there is no threat of sin moving forward, right? Sometimes you hear people say, man, why didn't God create the world? Why didn't God create people in such a way where they could not sin? You know, why did God even allow the possibility of sin so that sin could enter the world and death could enter the world? Well, we get the scenario that sometimes we ask for here at the end. We get a scenario where God recreates everything and there is absolutely no threat of sin ever occurring again. There is no threat of a curse being administered towards mankind for his behavior ever again. What we have in the new creation is the scenario that we've all wondered, why didn't God create it that way? God does create it that way when he recreates everything. It's a scenario where there is no evil, there is no detestable thing allowed into his new creation. So in the end, God restores everything. Those forfeited blessings of Eden, that that intimate fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God that was even limited based on the fact that they were not yet righteous, all of that is given back and more when God recreates everything in the very end. And it's the conquerors, and we'll talk about what that means, but it's the conquerors who inherit this. And this world that we're talking about, this world that's being described to us in the best language that John can come up with, it's free from all of the negative things that we currently have in this fallen world. And it's filled with the eternal joy of God's presence. But I think a lot of the things that we enjoy about this world carry over into the new world as well. It's a, it's a removal of the bad things. And I think we keep a lot of the good things in this new world as well. All right. For our kids, it's a, it's a world without the bad things that we think about when we think about this world. And it's a world filled with God's presence. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 are the outcome of the final judgment for the believer, right? We talked about the, the unbeliever destined to the lake of fire, right? Revelation 21 and 22 carries on what we talked about at the end of Revelation 20, that great white throne judgment. It's the result of the believer's judgment, The glory of the age to come is necessarily portrayed by means of imagery uh, imagery belonging to the present age. What that means is that John is doing the very best that he can to describe what he's seeing. But there may be very well things that he is seeing that he has never seen before, 
and therefore does not have words to adequately describe it. I think we get that idea from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. We'll start reading in verse 7. It says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Right? There are things that God has in store for us that, man, we just we can't even really comprehend right now. And those things are coming to us, and John gets a glimpse of those things and does his very best to try to describe those things in, in words and language that, that was already useful at the time, right? But I think we have to be very careful to not abandon how we've been looking at Revelation all the way up to this point and all of a sudden try to take everything literal in Revelation 21 and 22. A lot of this is imagery and pictures to try to help us comprehend the glories of what it's going to be like to spend eternity with God. Okay, so I don't think we need to press the details so much that we're trying to figure out exactly where does this city lie, exactly how long, how big, what exactly does it look like type of thing. I think John is trying to proclaim to us the excellencies of God's glory and the excellencies of being with God for eternity. And, and, and he's getting a vision of this, um, but it may not be a literal vision that we have to press all the details for. I mean, think in terms of the fact that what is being described here is a city, but it's also told to us that this is the bride of Christ, right? We understand the church is the bride of Christ. And so even at its core, what it's saying is that God's people is best pictured as a city, right? But we know that we're not going to automatically turn into some type of building for eternity, right? Like we maintain our bodies, we maintain our physical, uh, our physical humanness, Right? And so we've got a, a city that is representation of God's people, the church. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't want us to try to press the details so literally in thinking that John is trying to give, give us a, an accurate picture of what eternity necessarily looks like. What we do have is God coming down from heaven, which is a complete reversal of what we see in Genesis when God tries to go, or when man tries to go up to God, right? When we saw the building of the Tower of Babel, it was man who felt he was worthy to go to God. Revelation, we have God who has now secured the right to come to man and to, uh, to be his God and to uh, commune with him forever. Okay, so it's God coming down from heaven. The guarantee of this passage, the guarantee that the events that we're reading about will happen and will occur uh, are based on the words of the Alpha and the Omega, right? God says in um, verse 5, he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All right, so the guarantee that this passage plays out the way that it's described here is based on God saying that it is done. God has the first words in history and he has the last words in history, right? Like he brings everything into being. He brings everything into creation by speaking those words and he finishes history by saying it is done. It is complete. It is finished. The passage closely parallels Genesis 1 through 3. We've already kind of referenced that. You have the heavens and the earth being created in Genesis. You have them being recreated here in Revelation. You have the sun being created in Genesis. You have the no sun uh, description here in Revelation. Same for night versus no night. Seas versus no seas. Curse versus no curse. Death versus no death. Paradise being removed. Paradise, paradise being reintroduced. The sorrow that we see in Genesis, the lack of sorrow that we see here in Revelation. And so the, the, the picture that we're supposed to have is that we're to go back to Genesis and see, man, from the very beginning of time, this is what it looked like. And here is God having fixed everything in between. Okay. We said the New Jerusalem is pictured as a place representing a people. It's a cube of perfection. Um, the 12,000 stadia, uh, I think when you kind of measure that out and what that actually means, I think you guys were talking about up in this group here, it's somewhere between 1,400, 1,500 miles. If you actually tried to draw this cube out, it would extend all the way up into the orbit of the earth. I mean, so it's a, it's a giant space that's being described here. What I find interesting is that it's described as being equal in length, height, it's 12,000 of these stadia. There are 12 
um, 12 pieces to that cube. So if you do 12,000 times 12, you get the 144,000 number that we said represents all of God's people for all time. So again, I think these numbers are not meant to be taken literally, but are again symbolic of truths that God wants us to know. The picture here is that this city that represents God's people is that 144,000 number that we saw earlier in Revelation. Those that are sealed, those that do not worship the beast, those who do not take the mark of the beast, those who persevere to the very end, okay? What we find in this passage too, I think, is that eternity is characterized in three ways. We see God's presence, God's protection, and God's purity as three themes that kind of run through this passage, right? God is very present in our eternity. He extends his protection throughout our eternity, and he's also very um, intentional about maintaining the purity of eternity, right? It's very clear that those who are not believers are excluded from this eternity, and they're never allowed in. God doesn't allow sin. God does not allow a curse. God does not allow anything to taint his new heavens and his new earth. So it's characterized in three ways, God's presence, God's protection, God's purity. It's also pictured in three ways. We have a perfect city that's being described here, a perfect temple, and a perfect garden. All three of these pictures are kind of interwoven within this passage, a perfect city, a perfect temple, and a perfect garden the city being highlighted by its foundations and its walls and its gates, the things that you would typically think about when thinking of an ancient city. Its foundations, its walls, and its gates are all pictured with perfect language. And then there's a lot of language that comes out of the Old Testament. As we've seen throughout Revelation, a lot of what John writes about um, is supported by what the Old Testament has to say about the future. In Isaiah chapter 60, this is one example. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And then in verse 11. Your gates will be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. We see that picture in Revelation uh, chapter 21 and 22 as well. If you jump to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Again, language that's being borrowed from that passage to relate to our eternity. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22 is another passage. Again, I show you these simply for you to see that Revelation is not foreign language, that it's, it's language that's found throughout Scripture. Verse 22 of Isaiah 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. They shall go out, And look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to to all flesh. Again, the separation of God's people from those who do not belong to him. Leviticus chapter 26, I'll read you two more. Leviticus chapter 26. And I think what this does is this just reassures us once again that what's described in Revelation 21 happens, right? Like the Alpha and the Omega is saying, it is done, this will happen, and he's been saying it all along. 
Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11 and 12. This isn't something that God conjures up after the New Testament has kind of played itself out. This has always been his plan. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. Last one is Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Even the stones that are mentioned here, a lot of these stones find their history in Exodus, I believe Exodus 28, the stones that are used on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. Again, the picture here, and we see this in this passage, that there is no temple, right? Like there is no segregation. There is no unique place where only some people can go to worship God. That privilege has been extended to everybody in this city, right? Like there is no temple. The whole thing is considered the temple, Right? There, is, there is no exclusion to where only some people have these stones. Like these stones are, are extended throughout the entire city. The picture being that there is, no, there is no veil anymore. That God's presence is extended to all people. All people commune with him. All people fellowship with him in eternity. Right? Like everybody gets their fill of God when eternity happens. And so this language is borrowed from the Old Testament to help us picture what eternity looks like. All right? So let's jump into our notes And we'll kind of work through the passage. Again, we're not going to hit every point in Revelation 21 and 22 because I don't think every detail is meant to be dissected. I think it's meant to be this this kaleidoscope type picture of eternity, this this brilliance uh, of a picture of what, um, what life with God looks like once the new creation of the heavens and the earth take place. All right, number one, we long for an environment that is free from fallenness. We are to long for an environment that is free from fallenness. For our kids, long for a world that is free from sin. We long for this environment because it's free from all of the bad things that we experience here on this earth. First of all, we're destined to enjoy a renewed environment. New heavens and new earth are in store for us. Romans chapter 8 talks about this. Romans chapter 8 verse 19 For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul kind of shows the parallelism between how the earth feels and how the, the believer feels, that they both long to be recreated. Both have been subjected to sin. Both are not fully what they're supposed to be because of the curse. And both long for that curse to be lifted, right? I've told you before, this is why I believe in a younger earth perspective, because an older earth perspective allows for death and decay prior to the entrance of sin into this world. And I have a hard time reconciling that with what Paul says the earth is groaning for in Romans chapter 8, that it has only been groaning since sin entered the earth. It's been groaning about its own decay and its own destruction since sin came into being, and it longs to be released from that. Right, And so creation longs for this day where it's recreated, new heavens and new earth. In um, 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to give you number one, we're destined to enjoy a renewed environment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned. 
But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, Peter gives us that picture that, that what we experience, what we see today is not to last, that it is going to come to an end and there's going to be a recreation of new heavens and new earth. Number two, not only are we destined to enjoy a renewed environment, we are destined to enjoy the absence of sin's effects and consequences. We're destined to enjoy the absence of sin's effects and consequences. You can't read Revelation 21 without picking up on the fact that there are many things that are not present any longer when God recreates everything, right? A bunch of things are mentioned here as things that are no longer present when these new heavens and these new earths are are presented. It says, I saw a a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The very first thing that we see that's no longer present is the sea. What does that mean? What's wrong with oceans? Why, Why would God not have seas in his new earth? He may very well have what we call oceans in the new heavens and the new earth. I have no idea. I think the picture, the, 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 the intent behind this is that the chaos and the evil that's been associated with the sea in Revelation is to be no more, that it's completely removed in the new order. Think about it. Every time we've seen seas pop up in Revelation, we have beasts coming out of it, or we have unholy trade taking place by the merrymen that are, that are on the sea. Like It's always pictured as a chaotic, evil place in the book of Revelation. In the new order, what we see is that there is no sea. There is no chance for a beast to arise. There is no chance for man to abuse the sea with his unholy trade. Like that, 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 that opportunity is removed. There is no sea in the new earth. Secondly, we see that there are no tears. There are no mourning in the new earth. Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think the intent here is that the sorrows that we experience are comforted. I think the hurtful memories that we have are, are altered or, or changed in such a way. And here's what I mean by that. I don't think that, that our minds are now wiped from everything that was hurtful to us in this life. I think for the very first time, we get a healthy perspective of what was actually taking place in our life at times when we may have cried the most. And I think those tears are now wiped away. Those tears are now removed because we have a full picture of how God was using every incident in our life for his glory. Right? So think about right now, think about some of the most painful memories that you have in your life, things that if you thought about them long enough would bring tears to your eyes once again that there's still great hurt that exists because of things that you had to travel through. And now picture being in a state where those things are no longer hurtful. There's no longer cause for mourning because you have a, a bigger picture of what God's intent was about that situation in your life. Like right now it's painful. Right now it brings tears to our eyes. But on that day, there are no more tears. There is no more mourning. There is no more pain. And again, I don't think, I think it would be a disservice for God to say, you know what, wipe your memories so that you don't think about that stuff anymore. God receives far more glory for him to give us a picture that says, you know what, this is what those things were for. This is how I use those things for good. Even if you weren't able to connect the dots and see that there was good coming from it, we now have a healthy perspective to see how every painful thing in our life, everything that brought tears to our eyes was used for good purposes. Right? So I think, I think God gives us this picture where, man, the tears are wiped away because we're seeing everything from a perspective of glory. No tears or mourning. Uh, Revelation seven seventeen. we already saw this, this hope highlighted for us in a passage that was kind of right there on the cusp of eternity because we talked about how Revelation just kind of recycles back and forth. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. That picture again is found here in Revelation 21 where he gives us water to satisfy and to quench our thirst. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's also found in Isaiah chapter 25. And it's important, I think it's important to see this in multiple areas because, man, I look forward to the day where there is nothing that can occur that happens to us that would cause us to mourn or to cry anymore. Isaiah 25, 8 through 9 He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. 
It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. No tears or mourning. He goes on to highlight the fact that there is no pain. I think this is certainly relevant for the original readers that the pain of persecution is now removed um, from the new order. There will be no more pain. Suffering is cured and removed. There is no death. We've read that now multiple times. Eternal life now becomes the norm. Uh, There's not an expectance of death. Um, There's not an expectance that we would lose people. Eternal life is now the norm in this new society. There is no thirst. Uh, That's certainly something else that's absence from this in verse uh, verse 6 of chapter 21. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Right? It's free water, free thirst-quenching water that's extended to God's people. There's no fear of the second death. It says in verse 8, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you're not in that category, you don't have to worry about the second death. This new order, this new heaven, new earth, there is no fear of the second death. There's no closed gates in this new order. We see that in verse 25. The gates of the city will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. It's a picture of the security and the protection that comes from God in eternity. There's no fear of invaders to our paradise. The walls are too thick and they're too high to be penetrated. The gates don't even need to be closed. They can remain open because there is no night. There is no fear of what may come in the darkness of night, right? There is no fear of the serpent finding his way into paradise and tempting someone to doubt the goodness of God, right? We've said before, man, why didn't God create it to where there was no Satan, to where there was no temptation, to where Adam and Eve could not fall? And we get that here. We get that here where the gates remain open. There is no need for protection. There is nothing that can bring about harm to God's people. No closed gates. No wickedness or unclean thing is found here either. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only people here are people who are believers. No wickedness, no unclean thing. All evil is banished. There is no curse. Verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. Jesus' blood has lifted the curse once and for all. There are also no night. We see that multiple times. Verse 5, night will be no more. They will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The idea that there is no night means that there is no activity of darkness. There's no fear of the unknown. All of that is forever removed. Now, we've said before, because of all these things not being present in eternity, we should fully expect that they would all be present now, right? As believers, for us to look forward to a day where we don't cry anymore, where we don't mourn anymore, where we don't experience pain anymore, we should very much expect that we would experience those things here in this old earth. We should expect times of crying. We should expect times of mourning. We should expect times of pain, expect times of difficulty. We should expect those things because we look forward to the day where those things are removed, where they are vanquished, where they are forever taken away. Don't be surprised by these things now. Long for their removal in the future. We should expect that people will die around us that we love. We should expect these things to occur today but we look forward to the day where they are no longer in existence. Number two, we long for an environment that is filled with intimate fellowship. So when we think of eternity, man, there's, there's a lot of things that aren't there, and then all of those things are replaced with intimate fellowship with our Creator. For our kids, we long for a world where we enjoy God's presence, and we will enjoy it in ways that we've never experienced it in the here and now. Right? Like we get we get a taste of that, we get a glimpse of it, but we will experience intimate fellowship in, in a capacity that we've never had before. Number one, we are destined to enjoy perfect and constant communion with God. We're going to experience the intimate fellowship that was previously reserved for the high priest only. 
The picture here is that God will commune with all of man, that everyone has full access to him. We experience the fellowship between a bride and a groom, right? Like God gives us marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, right? So think about the, the, the joy and the anticipation of, of, of a wedding day. For those that have experienced a wedding, you know what that was like waiting for your bride, waiting for your groom, the anticipation, the excitement that was going to come with that intimate fellowship that would then proceed from that day forward, right? Even as a guest, there's this anticipation and excitement of knowing that two people are being brought together in a way that they never have been before. They're joining their lives together. That's the picture that we have of eternity, a marriage celebration of of two coming together as one, and it's Christ and his bride, intimate fellowship, I think marriage is given to us as a glimpse of that for us to to hope rightfully in that intimate fellowship that we'll enjoy one day with Christ. We experience the fulfillment of our adoption, an adoption that's been communicated to us, but now we're told that that we we will be God's son, that he will be our God, that he will rule and reign over us, and we'll enjoy that, that unique adopted relationship with him, a relationship that's highlighted for us in Romans 8, 14 through 17, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And we're now destined for this world because we've been adopted into God's family. It's something that we are called to long for. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 also encourages us to long for this day. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. We look forward to this environment. It's what has been promised to us as adopted sons. Lastly, we experience a new level of fellowship that was previously prohibited. We're in fact told here in Revelation that we will see God. We will see God, and this is something that's been previously prohibited from mankind, but it's something that's been longed for by man. In Psalm chapter 11, verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm chapter 17, verse 5, or 15. Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. One thing I have, have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We're promised that this will occur for us as believers in the New Testament, that we will actually see God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're destined to enjoy that perfect, constant, intimate communion with God. Number two, we're destined to enjoy the presence of God's glory with all of his people. God's glory reigns supreme in this environment to the point that, the, that no sun is needed because his light exceeds our experience with the sun and the moon. His light shines into all darkness and illuminates it. We're even told in Genesis 8.22 that day and night will continue until this earth ends. This earth now comes to an end here in Revelation 21. There is no need for sun. There is no need for night. God brings those things to an end. There is no temple because his fellowship and his presence extends to all everywhere. We've talked about that already. I think there's also the important notation here that there is no divisions. We see this this city being described in 
in Jewish language as well as Gentile language. When we look at the gates and the foundations, we see pictures of the tribes of Israel, but we also see pictures of the apostles. And the image there, the picture there, is that there's a combination of the, the Jewishness of the Old Testament and the, and the Gentileness of the New Testament being combined as one people of God. We've talked about that throughout Revelation, that, that God unites Jew and Gentile alike into his one people of God. We see that best in the way that this city is even described with the tribes and the apostles being mentioned. It says in uh, verse 14 of 21, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's a great picture of the unity of God's people. Number three, we are destined to enjoy the satisfaction of all of our desires. We are destined to enjoy the satisfaction of all our desires. We are freely quenched if we choose to find our refreshment in him. Jesus talks about extending this water to us that quenches our thirst, water that we can drink freely from. It's the same offer that's extended to the woman at the well in John chapter 7. Verse 37, on that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus extends an offer to quench all of our desires through him. We find that perfect nourishment and care through the tree of life in chapter 22. And then number four, We are destined to enjoy all the promises of God. I love the fact that here in Revelation 22, specifically, we see a lot of the fulfillment of promises made to the churches back at the beginning of Revelation, right? Ephesus was told in chapter 2, verse 7, that if they endured, if they overcame, if they conquered, the tree of life would be extended to them. We see that tree of life pop up in Revelation 22, too. No idea where it's been up until this point, Right, It disappears in Genesis, but it says through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the, of the nations. And this is the tree that was promised to the church at Ephesus. If they overcome, if they conquered, they would get to eat of it. Smyrna was promised in chapter 2, verse 11, that they would overcome the second death. We see that occurring in verse 8 of chapter 21 that only those who fall into this other category experience that second death. So those in Smyrna who overcame will certainly experience that promise being fulfilled. Philadelphia was promised in chapter 3, verse 12, that they would be identified with God in his city. We see that occurring in chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. That identification, that close intimacy being granted to the church at Philadelphia It's also a promise extended to us. Laodicea was even promised that they would have the privilege of reigning with him if they were to conquer. We see that in verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The picture that we have here is a a, a glorious, brilliant picture. John's best wording for what eternity is going to be like. It's an eternity that's absent of the things that we hate most about this world. It's a, it's a presence of the things that we long for most in this world as well. All of our desires being quenched and satisfied in the ways that God intended for them to be. Who enjoys this future? Who, who gets to experience this? We're told in verse 7 of chapter 21, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So the answer to that question is the conquerors, those who overcome we look to a couple other passages to better define and understand who these people are. First John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The conqueror is pictured as one who does not yield to the things of this world and instead puts his faith and trust in Christ. Matthew chapter 13, verse 21. This is the parable of the sower explained, and it talks about the one who who has no root in himself but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately 
he falls away. This is one who does not conquer. This is one who, who instead yields to the things of this world, yields to the pressures of this world. And that leads us into that second question, who is separated from this future? It's people who are described as cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Believers are very clearly separated from this type of grouping. When it comes to the cowardly, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 paints a different picture for the believer. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Hebrews chapter 10. We don't get this spirit of fear. We're not to be cowards as followers of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. A much better picture of of the believer given in those two passages. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, talks about the faithless. It says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We've, we've, we've applied this before to, the, to the, the woman Rahab in the Old Testament, right? She believed in the God of Israel, believed that the God of Israel existed, believed that he would reward her for running to him, for seeking him. It's that type of faith that brings honor to God. The faithless are separated from this future. The detestable are separated. What's a detestable person look like? Titus chapter 1 verse 16 tells us what the detestable is. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I mean, these are people that claim to be Christians and don't live like it. They're they're, they're called detestable in the book of Titus. In Revelation, we find they have no inheritance in this future. Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Revelation 14, 5 talks about the truth the truthfulness of believers. Man, I would encourage you to look at this list and and make sure that none of them could be used in such a way to describe you, right? Like which one better describes you, conqueror or sexually immoral? Conqueror or liar? Conqueror or one who professes Christ but doesn't always live like it or lives unlike it most of the time, right? The conqueror is the one who has hope in this future, The Holy Spirit is living inside of him. The Holy Spirit is empowering him. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying him. The Holy Spirit is preserving him until this day. It's the other who kind of falls by the wayside. Seed has been sown, but as the fruit grows, it is is squelched for various reasons, the things of this world. told you that John is doing his best to describe this future. I love the end paragraph, the last paragraph of the last battle in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, says the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all of the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one on the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's hard to wrap our minds around the fact that what we've experienced up to this point in history is just a small blip in God's overall long-term plan, right? Like there's coming a day where we will enjoy him and enjoy his creation in the ways that we were meant to without all the bad things of this world. And we get glimpses of it. He gives us things to kind of, wet our appetite a little bit, right? Like we talked about the marriage piece being one of those, that intimate fellowship that we look forward to, we long for, we celebrate. We know it points us to an even greater relationship in the future. Man, probably the closest thing that that comes to to kind of experiencing and looking forward to eternity is, is what some of us get when we take vacation time, right? Like there's this period of time where we kind of escape all the, the negative things in our life, the pressures in our life, the anxieties in our life. And unless you're just completely lazy on vacation, vacation oftentimes still requires work, still requires labor, still requires uh, investment in our families. 
but it's done so without some of the pressures and the anxieties of this world. Man, I sleep better than I ever sleep when I'm like on vacation. Adam and I had the chance to go fishing uh, and Alex had the chance to go fishing over the weekend. And I was just telling him, man, I sleep, I slept so good down here without the pressures of some of the things that I have to do job wise or whatnot, man, to just be kind of free from that. Right? I don't know about you, but times where I get to get alone with God and spend time reading and studying on vacation, man, they're just sometimes sweeter than in the midst of all the, the hurry and the, and the anxiety of everyday life here. There's, there's some people you meet that, that you, you know they never read books, but when they go on vacation, they're always looking for a good book to take and read. Why? Because there's just something about being on vacation where you can find refreshment and you can find intimacy with God that you don't always get at home in the, in the hurry of life. I I think vacation is just a a, a piece, just a taste, a glimpse of what eternity kind of looks like. We're we're able to experience creation without the anxieties, without the worries, without the difficulties of this world. We're able to enjoy relationships the way that they were meant to be enjoyed. God gives us glimpses. John gives us the best picture that he can as he tries to describe what he is seeing. But I think it probably, when we get there, will pale in comparison to what it actually is. I think we'll look at it and we'll say, man, this is not even anywhere near what John was writing, right? It's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a picture that's extended to those who conquer, those who, who believe in Jesus, those who resist the things of this world, those who see the things of this world paling in comparison to what John's trying to describe here. The application for us in closing is for us to really focus on this future and to live according to that future. And we're told to do this in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, that would be all of us here that claim to be a Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. These are things that are going to come down according to John. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We have a responsibility to live our life believing that this day is going to happen, believing that this day will bring better things than we can possibly invest in here on this earth to experience that delayed gratification, to say no to things here on this earth now, knowing that the things that are to come are far better than anything we could possibly imagine. For our family worship questions, I want us to spend some time reviewing the list of things that won't be in eternity talking about them as a family, what are the things that we're most glad about that we will not experience for eternity? And then number two, talk about what you think heaven will be like in your own words. These are John's words. He's given us the best description possible, but what are some ways that we think about heaven? Um, Let's talk about the accuracies and maybe even the inaccuracies of some of those things. I think it'll be a healthy way for us to, to point our kids towards looking forward to this future. Let's pray together. Father, we're very thankful for the truths that are contained here in Revelation 21 and 22. We know that John has done his best to articulate the images and the pictures that you gave to him. And God, we're thankful for the clarity that we can see, that we we get a glimpse, a picture of the fact that we are looking forward to a place that there is no death, there is no sin, there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is no crying and mourning that you've removed all those things. You've removed the cause for all those things. God, we're looking forward to a day where, where your glory is put on display and we don't need the sun, we don't need a lamp to light our way, that your glory shines forth. It does so in such a way where there is no night, there is no unknown, there is no fear or hesitancy about what's going to happen, that we can keep the gates open, we can keep the doors unlocked that there's such security and protection that we find in this eternity. God, we're thankful that intimate fellowship is being extended to us, fellowship that will satisfy and quench all of our longings and desires in ways that you meant for them to be quenched. God, we look forward to this day. We look forward to this eternity. I pray that in seeing a glimpse of this, that it will cause all of us to be conquerors, people who say no to this world and say yes to the world to come. That we would believe in you, and our belief would lead us to live accordingly, that we would not be grouped with the detestable who profess to know you, but deny you by our lifestyle. God, help our our words and our 
uh, our lifestyles to match up, to, to be accurate descriptions of who we are. God, I pray that you'd help us to be focused on the future as Colossians tells us to be. We'd be heavenly minded and we would structure our lives in such a way where we're focused on the future and things to come and not the things that are here now. That we would not be enamored or entertained in such a way that we lose sight of the future. God, for those that may be in the the wrong group right now, those that are better described as liars, as sexually immoral, as detestable, as murderers. God, I pray that you would bring about conviction and salvation in their lives. Father, I know we all know people who are grouped in that category outside of our church. Help us to be faithful to communicate gospel truth to them so that they too can experience what we are longing for. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.